Welcome to the Newsbusters podcast with your host, executive editor of Newsbusters, Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to the never-ending aftermath of the midterms. To use a word my boy Ben employed in Scrabble, it's a miasma of bad vote counting. Yes, as of taping time here on Wednesday in the rest in HQ, I've been checking the New York Times and their reliance on AP projections. They still can't tell us Republicans took the House. I think Fox News is proclaiming that. They, uh, they have nine seats left that they haven't determined. Six of them are in California, but a lot of these are not close. Mike Garcia in California is up nine. Kevin Kiley is up by six. David Valadao is up five. But they say there's only 64% counted in the Valadao race, and only 57% of the votes are counted in Kiley's race. But that's after a week of counting. I mean, California, what, a, what an embarrassment. Another one is the weirdo ranked choice vote in Alaska. We do expect Sarah Palin's going to lose again. Senator Frank's daughter, Lisa Murkowski, is now nearly even with her conservative challenger, Kelly Shabaka. Notice that the left has been holding a months-long panic attack about states having the right to their own election rules and regulations. This is a part of what anyone with a national perspective is struggling with right now, all these state rules. This and Georgia's got to get to 50% rule. Although I suppose that that race would be a Democrat win now without the rule. But it also would have been a Republican incumbent win in 2020 without the rule. Anyway, to assess how we are doing here with the long vote counting and how we're supposed to feel about it is our video is Mr. Bill D'Agostino. Welcome. How's it going, Tim? We're good. We're uh, we're spunky. Yeah. <laughs> And we're, we're waiting patiently. Well, this is what they were trying to tell us. You know, you, you said you found this whole pattern, as you do, with little clips of them all trying to lecture people that counting votes takes time and everybody needs patience. The way you put it was, it's hard to say whether they sound more like exasperated kindergarten teachers or preachy DMV employees. Either way, it's incredibly obnoxious. And here's the, the, the medley you made. The truth, everyone, as you know, is that it's going to take time. And that is normal. This is normal. Ordinary Arizonans will continue the ordinary work of counting votes. This is part of the process. Normal. This is normal. Yep. Don't get upset. Well, there are tens of thousands of votes remaining to be counted in those states, and the margins are going to be narrow, so it will take time. It take The process takes time. Takes time. So I'm going to say it again. This is going to take some time. It's going to take a little bit of time, but hopefully we'll have some clarity maybe tomorrow, maybe the day after. It's confusing. We need to count, so we need to be patient. We have to be patient. Just have to be patient. Let's be patient. And they're working really, really hard to try to get everything done in a timely fashion. So patience, patience, patience. Calvate, it's, it's good. Right. It's fine. This is what this looks like. And I think it's a, a, a matter of informing and re-educating people of what yeah. happens in elections. Yeah. We've got a few days ahead of us, most Take likely, guys. Take a breath is, is, the, uh, is the lesson here. So tell us, when you were putting this together, yes, how exasperated were you to be lectured in such a way? Well, I, I stand by that characterization. Um, it, it wasn't just what they were saying. It's, the it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. Uh, yeah. They sound 
so derisive in all of these clips. I mean, especially Michael Steele there with the, you know, this takes time. Don't get upset. It's like, shut up, Michael. Uh, it's it's very pedantic, you know, yeah. and and they're 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 talking with this sort of frustrated authority to their audience. Like, how dare you be frustrated that you don't know the answer of who controls the House and Senate yet? Like, how dare you be upset about that? This takes time. How could you think it doesn't? It's like, well, because it didn't always used to be like this. This is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, it should be it should be understood that, it, you know, if you want your elections results to be trusted, the faster you can come up to, you know, uh, with with actual results, the way some states like Florida did, um, you, you can say, oh, well, we know how it all landed. And, you know, I personally, the race that makes me feel sketchy is Nevada, mm. you know, where uh, where Adam Laxalt's ahead, ahead, ahead. And then, uh, you know, days and days later, suddenly he's not. Yes. In Vegas, you know, in Harry Reid's Vegas, who knows what happened. But there's that. And then it's also that, like, the second the balance shifts, the race is immediately called. And <laughs> that's that's sort of the inverse of what you're seeing with all of these house races that you were talking about. Right. Where it's like, I mean, I, I don't even know. Have they called Lauren Boebert's race yet? No. Right. And so that's that's what at 99 percent reporting and she's up maybe 1500 votes. And they're like, well, you know, we could still, you know, let's let's wait. Yes, they are. So they're holding on that. Uh, and that. Yeah, that's one of the closer ones. The other one is California 13, where that one goes one way or the other, like within 500. Right. Um, so you're going to have some races in a 435 seat House election that are going to go to a recount. Yeah, uh, they'll be down to the line for sure. What the New York Times estimates or has been estimating for days now is 221 Republicans, 214 Democrats. Uh, certainly not what we expected. But see, here they are again. We're on Wednesday and they're at 217. And they're like, we can't, we just can't find one more. Right. right. <laughs> and it's it's I mean, if you'll pardon me saying it's it's due to a lack of interest in finding one more to call. I mean, it, it feels a lot like. The uh, election night 2016, when it wears into 3 a.m. and you've got one cable network calling Wisconsin and you've got one cable network calling Pennsylvania and neither of them will call the other state because that means that Trump won. Yeah, they, know, like it's it's like that. They, they do have that tendency of, well, we're all going to hold. I think we saw that in 2004, except in 2004, they jumped ahead a little too fast and said Gore won Florida and then they had to retract. Right. But, uh, you know, the wait, oh, four you're talking about. Yeah, that's Kerry. Right? Or I'm sorry, 2000. Thank you very much. But yes, well, there again in 2004, um, you had the whole problem with people thought the exit polls. Kerry was ahead of the exit polls. Mm -hmm. And so they were upset when it didn't when the exit polls turned out to not be accurate. And, you know, look, here we had again in this midterm, uh, all of us, Democrats and Republicans, expected more of a red wave because of the pre-election polling. So, yep. it, you know, part of it is, yes, I think we can say as as news media monitors, there's probably too much horse race, too much coverage of polling because and 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 your belief in the polls also colors the way you cover races. So, yeah, if you think, oh, I mean, I'll take you back to when you were a little kid, 96. Sure. 96, where the entire race was, Bob Dole's going to lose and lose badly. Right. Because their polls showed him down 13, 14, 15, 16. And then he lost by, I think, seven because mm -hmm. uh, Ross Perot was in it again. But it, it, it's 
So, yes, I think we could all as citizens just say, it's, I'm not saying they shouldn't do polls. I should just say there should be plenty of grain of salt in there. Um, but this is, I, I think the thing that interests me in the medley you made is you're saying Michael Steele and Katie Turr are getting all lectury, but it's not the MSNBC audience that <laughs> that apparently needs the lecture. Right. Uh, you know, it's like they're lecturing at Fox News viewers who are certainly not watching. Yeah, they're lashing out at the uh, Americans that they hate most, it's which is yeah. people like us. It's sort of like a... Yeah, th this is where, again, it's more like a performance. It's more like a group chat. Mm -hmm. uh, but you made this point that I thought was really interesting. Um, you remembered another video medley you made after the Iowa caucuses in 2020. Yep. Uh, where the Democrats had a real debacle. Uh, I don't remember how many days that went. It was like a week. I mean, they were. I think one of the quotes in your medley was like, are we going to know who won New Hampshire? But yeah, before. before we know who won Iowa. Yes, that's I believe that was actually a quote. Um, and I think they're about a week apart, usually. Yeah. And and what happened there was they uh, tried to bring in this stupid app uh, that would would, you know, streamline the whole process because the way Iowa does its caucus is is very bizarre and doesn't really resemble what everybody thinks of a normal election as. Um, and so they tried to streamline the process with reporting results. And the entire thing just broke. It hadn't been tested properly, and it just didn't work. And I think they even lost the results from some counties. Like, there were, it was just unrecoverable, and they had to redo these straw polls, basically. And uh, it was it was an utter disaster. And they said so. So let's listen to what, what Bill collected back then. Breaking this morning, the Iowa caucuses. They're what's breaking, because the system is actually broken. We don't have results, but we have news about why we don't have uh, results. And I'm only being sarcastic because this is an epic failure by the Iowa State Democratic Party. Who won the Iowa caucus? And that's a key question. And who won Iowa? We don't know who won. We still do not know who won. We still don't know the numbers. Will we know who wins here in New Hampshire before we ever find out who won in Iowa? Seems the jokes are going to start writing themselves. Look at the results. <laughs> exactly. Now, they are. A lot of zeros. They can't run a bathroom. <laughs> How are they going to run you a democracy? Wow. Breaking overnight. Caucus chaos. 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 Chaotic chaos. A real debacle. Not a good look for the Democrats. The real winner here, the results are in, is Donald Trump. We don't know who won, but we know who lost, and it's Iowa. This morning, the two chief political exports of Iowa are uncertainty, and embarrassment. The difference here is in this time, it's a bipartisan vote. It's a Democrat versus Republican vote. So they're all going to get up and say everybody should rely on all this stuff. Uh, and, and in 2020, it was only a Democrat vote. So as the pile of Democrats at these networks were upset that the Democrats, one, that they didn't have a result for the news media, but two, they were embarrassing all of us Democrats. And beyond that, the term election denier was also at the time not a big word in the media's lexicon Yeah, because the most prominent election denier in America at the time that that debacle happened in Iowa was Stacey Abrams. Yes. You know, so that this was not some some thing that they were eager to pin on the Republican Party, whereas now now what they're doing is anybody who expresses frustration that the vote counting is going on so long and just points out that there is more potential for an appearance of impropriety, not even necessarily alleging any kind of fraud, but just saying this looks sketchier when you take 
over a week to count votes. Now they're calling that election denialism, too. They've gone so far in the other direction. And so, yeah, when you look at their reaction back then to Iowa, it's kind of like, huh, what what uh, what changed here, guys? Yeah, it's like we, we had this case in this election with the Maricopa County messing up with their with their vote counting on Election Day that the ballots wouldn't be wouldn't be counted. Twenty percent of machines in Maricopa County not working. I mean, that's. That then, is incredible incompetence. And then Andrea Mitchell comes out and says, you know, Jedi mind meld, really bad Jedi mind trick. Uh, Maricopa County did very well. <laughs> no. Right. No, that's that's the inverse of reality. Like you <laughs> the fact that they are now struggling to pick up the pieces of their own mistake does not mean like, oh, look at look at how hard they're working to clean up all the glasses that they dropped on the floor. You know, like that's that's not praiseworthy. It's just stop breaking glasses. I was not the biggest fan of Carrie Lake's sort of whole routine about, you know, uh, election denialism. Uh, but as you suggested, in 2018 and 19 and 20, Stacey Abrams was a hero. You know, they they put her on the covers of magazines. And then Washington Post magazine had her dressed like some sort of superhero. Simultaneously a hero and a victim. A victim of a stolen election due to voter suppression, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the, as I recall, it wasn't particularly close. But I guess no, where, it was not. Where I was going was that here in the in the Carrie Lake Katie Hobbs race, uh, it was fairly close. I mean, I guess it's it's under one percent. So when you have the kind of problems that Maricopa County had, it does sort of lend something, you know, lay lay something over that where people can say, ah, I, you know, it it makes me nervous. And you just want to say. Yes, Maricopa County had every reason to get it right. It was, yeah, it was a debacle, too. Like, it, it was it was a catastrophe to have 20% of your machines not working on Election Day. I mean, there, there are people who this is their job, right? Like, yeah. you have two years to prepare for this. What are you doing, man? Well, it's especially bad when the Secretary of State managing the election is the Democrat nominee for governor. Right, who very well may have won because of Maricopa. Well, and this is where... We see the double standard again, which is it was an enormous, terrible problem that in Georgia in 2018, that the secretary of state, Brian Kemp, did not resign his seat and manage the election that he was in. Correct. And you can be a journalist and say, I don't like that. I don't like your failure to recuse. Um, but then what happens in this cycle? Now, there was not a ton of media coverage of Katie Hobbs refusing to recuse. Uh, John Carl when he interviewed her briefly after like a six minute beatdown with Carrie Lake, right. you get one question of John Carl on this week saying, shouldn't you recuse? <laughs> so, uh, Brilliant. Very brave, John. And of course, yes, I know Katie Hobbs primarily as a debate denier. Yeah. She didn't want one. Fetterman went on, went out to debate. Yeah, exactly. And she's, and she's hiding in her basement. Like, what, <laughs> what are you doing? Yes, exactly. If Fetterman's going to debate, everybody who refused to debate looks additionally embarrassing. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, but this this point was made to me by a coworker of of ours, uh, Jeffrey Clark, recently. Yes. Um, does the Katie Hobbs race now say to some Democrat candidates who are vulnerable due to candidate quality, um, why debate? You don't need to debate anymore. You can win without it. Yes, because not only did she decline to do a, a debate with her Republican opponent, she declined to debate in the primaries. Right. And then when Arizona PBS, the Cronkite School of Journalism, 
that pile of taxpayer-funded hacks actually invited Katie Hobbs to a 30-minute interview after she declined a debate. She then slipped down the ele- a freight elevator to avoid the reporters that were there to ask her questions after the interview. Good Lord. And to people wondering why this is the case and why she's hiding from all this, you've got you've to see some Katie Hobbs in action. I mean, she, this is to say nothing of, of her policies or politically or anything. Just as a candidate, she is awful. Just awful. Well, I mean, that's where, yeah, they only put the candidate quality thing on the Republican side. Right. And you can certainly say one of the problems in this cycle was, yes, all of the Trump-endorsed candidates, Trump wanted somebody like Trump, who had zero political experience. And that can have an appeal in some races. Right. But you also then have that whole question of, do I know how to do this? Um, And uh, obviously, J.D. Vance was the exception to the rule. Um, as a first-time candidate for mm-hmm. a statewide office. But when people try to say, well, what's the difference between Mike DeWine winning easily and, and J.D. Vance winning by five, or Chris Sununu wins big, Don Bolduck loses, um, Chuck Todd tried to call them the normal Republicans, the, the governors. Sure. But they were incumbents, and, and, and incumbents know how, the, how it works, and voters can trust incumbents. Um, and the v- voters did a lot of trusting in incumbents in this cycle, both sides. And you know what I will say? Uh, one, this was pointed out by somebody else. I forget who, by whom, on Twitter. Um, but there was there was a lot of talk of uh, Herschel Walker being kind of the Trumpy guy in Georgia. But I think that Herschel Walker is actually a pretty good case of candidate quality being the main issue. And I think that the abortion thing really hurt him. Because while Kemp vastly outperformed Walker... Uh, you know who else did and who won re-election was one of the fake electors from Georgia, like one of the guys who was sent as as, a, <laughs> as part of the slate of electors when Georgia was not was not didn't go for the Republicans in 2020. Right. That guy won. Right. So, you know, Herschel Walker and Kate, Carrie Lake pretty much were the primary hate objects of the networks the way that we were watching them. Absolutely. And- and, you know, what they did to Herschel Walker was just sort of out of the Clarence Thomas, Brett Kavanaugh uh, playbook, except his accusers were allowed to remain anonymous. They're right. still anonymous. Um, and yet they damaged Walker with anonymous accusers. And that, to me, is something where, again, you would want to say the issue in that race may not just be candidate quality. It's an issue of journalism quality. Yes, yes. I wanted to make this point, since I tend to bring up the old stuff. Uh, when I think of close Iowa caucuses, I go right to 2012. Mm. That was another result, which we didn't know for days. Uh, and uh, on that night, Mitt Romney was the winner by eight. And then later, two weeks later, they announced Rick Santorum had won by 34. But see, nobody seemed to remember that Rick Santorum actually won. Like, he didn't get the media credit. Right. You know? And what's, what's incredible about that is, you know, a lot of people, rightly, I would say, put a ton of stock in, in the Iowa caucus because it is, it is the first uh, round in the, in the primaries. It's, it's about the prominence that you get from getting on the board and especially high up on the board. And so you could say that, in effect... Romney did kind of win the Iowa caucus in the way that mattered, which is he was given credit for winning. And so even though he didn't carry Iowa in the Republican primaries, he still got the bump that you get 
as the winner of the Iowa caucus. And so that's that's kind of what mattered. Yeah, that's where Rick Santorum's got a beef. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I like I'm a fan of Rick Santorum's and, and uh, uh, I think I would have voted for him by the time it came around. But that's just me. What's, uh, is he is he still uh, going on CNN and upsetting people? Is that no? They CNN let him go. You can catch him on Newsmax, but mm. yes, he was too conservative for the CNN viewers. I think again, the only person that CNN has on routinely that we like is Scott Jennings. Yeah, Scott's cool, and uh, and a little smattering of David Urban, who's fine. But but I mean, mo- for the most part, yes, the CNN Republicans are still. The Alyssa Farrah Griffins, um, yeah. who's yeah. who's now you know running around with her usual. She's she's more interested in making sure that her gal pals on the View uh, approve of her, um, and that's the kind of expert we get at CNN. Yeah, the Coven has her now, <laughs> as Nick Fondacaro would say. Yeah, somebody on Twitter called them the cackling sacks of hate. <laughs> that Fonda Carroll might have to use that one. That's excellent, yeah. Uh, I, while you're here, I, uh, I uh, did something. I uh, watched the uh, Chris Wallace had an interview on his show, his Sunday night show. Oh, who was talking to Chris Wallace? Who was talking to Chris Wallace? It was one of the guests on Sunday, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, we, we like talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, she's so in love with herself. Um, and uh, the part that I thought was particularly interesting was where he talked about her social media stardom, and he said she thinks her fame has come at a price. So he ran this uh, uh, a tweet, I guess, by Steve Cortez, who's a Trump backer, uh, basically mocking her and her boyfriend, saying that he was displaying his gross pale male feet in public. I guess this is a co- <laughs> kind of a COVID mockery sure and then wallace quoted her response she tweeted back if republicans are mad they can't date me they can just say that instead of projecting their sexual frustrations on my boyfriend's feet you creepy weirdos now gosh i don't know why chris had to bring this up the boyfriend's now her fiance by the way um but this just allowed her to go on this rant about how you know this is how i deal with the conservative media and their you know, their their misogyny. This is how I deal with a conservative media. I turn into a high school girl and say, why is everyone so obsessed with me? It's like really creepy. <laughs> it is part of her. It's really part of her shtick. It is. No, absolutely. It's it's the outward facing persona that she's cultivated for herself and that she pretty much has to stick to uh, even well, well into her middle age. I think she'll probably still be doing that. Yeah, I was laughing because Maxwell Frost at 25 is now the newbie, the new uh, shiny object of of democratic youth she's now at the age of 33 she's been aged out uh, a little bit but yeah i would say this is her idea that somehow she's like the sex object of the of the fox news set is to me a little like her crying outside a a, a, a border fence or yes. a, a supposed border fence yeah <laughs> Yeah, wherever that was. She, they probably just found a chain link fence somewhere. And then they and then Chris went on, if that wasn't bad enough, Chris went on to uh, say, I want to put up something that you said this summer, which is which is serious. Realistically, I can't even tell you if I'm going to be alive in September. Congresswoman, is that real? Do you do you feel your life is in danger? I mean, absolutely. I've felt that my life has been in danger 
since the moment that um, I won my primary election in 2018. And I, it, it became especially intensified when I was first uh, brought into Congress uh, in 2019. When you say that I f you feel your life is in danger, what does that mean on a daily basis? Does it mean as you walk down the street, as you go about your life, that you this is something on your mind, that you are looking over your shoulder? Yeah. What does it mean? It means when I wake up in the morning, I hesitate to walk my dog. It means when I come home, um, I have to ask my fiance to come out to where my car is, to walk me to just from my car to my front door. It, well, it's November and she's still alive. Yeah, that's some hard-hitting journalism, Chris. <laughs> that's, you know, you could at least throw in a little bit of a... Uh, a little bit of spin there, you know, or not spin, but, you know, a little bit of curve there. Like, hey, why, what makes you think your life is in danger exactly? What do you have to substantiate that? Right. How, do you have any threats that you've received? What are you talking about? But and it, no, it's just, oh, I'm so sorry. And it's probably true that they she's received threats, but I think a lot of members of Congress have received threats. And, yes. and that's something we can say is bad. But I mean, the, the drama here, and then Chris Wallace just comes on and says, how do you live with it? Is it worth it? Oh, my gosh. You know, and then she's all like, I need to be as robust and urgent as possible to say what I need to say because I don't want to take the time I have for granted, like, every day before I'm shot. Right, yeah, my time is ticking before the Republicans find me and get me. <laughs> and then Wallace adds, do you ever think, let someone else carry the torch? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> is the stress of being a hero too much for you? Do you ever think about taking a day off, AOC? It, it is. Uh, that's where I had to say, now you've gone full Larry King. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Which I think is maybe kind of what they're going for with this show. Because obviously not all the guests are, are politicos. Um, you know, and I think he wanted to obviously didn't want to have the same show he had at Fox News Sunday. But yeah, but, you you know, I mean, there's there's something in between uh on the spectrum in between you know straight journalism and weepy gushy interviews with with sitting members of congress yeah i mean he started with a decent question and this is the one that got all the attention on twitter was he said do you think the voters are looking to kind of come back away from the fringes or the extremes and of course she thought it was offensive to suggest that she was extreme in any way because she's just for you know health care and and, uh, you know, socialism in general. Yeah, she did her normal Mott and Bailey routine, which is what all, all little Bolsheviks do when you press them on anything that they believe. She tried to suggest that Marjorie Taylor Greene was in favor of uh, subjecting illegal aliens to harm. Um, now, there's a lot of wacky things that Marjorie Taylor Greene has said. I couldn't find that one on Google where she said, illegal aliens, I say let them drown in the Rio Grande. I say hurt them. Yeah, no, <laughs> you, you go with... Go with something real. You know, you're only as strong as your weakest argument. You don't need to make something up about Marjorie Taylor Greene saying something crazy. But, we should just okay. wrap this particular segment up with the thought that when he asked her about somebody else carrying the torch, she, of course, used these words, Bill. When we look at Jim Crow, comma. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So many parallels between Jim Crow and now. It's you know, just it's really, like, really come on, guys. Do we, you, you, um, these are the people that are like, we have a serious problem in our democracy with misinformation. Oh, and by the way, you guys are Jim Crow. Right. <laughs> and and there's all this there's all this talk about political division and whatever. And it's like, okay, well, if 
if you care at all as a journalist, then maybe when somebody who is an overt political actor goes on your show and uses your platform to push the most divisive, incendiary garbage possible, you push back and you say, wait, 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 let me stop you right there. What do you mean Jim Crow? I'm sorry, who... Yeah. Where show show me show me where the white and colored bathrooms are, please. <laughs> Not to mention the lynchings. Right. I mean, it's this, and they'd say George Floyd, uh, but you know, this is the this. Yeah, is, and that guy got off scot free, just like under. Oh wait, no. <laughs> yeah. My mistake. Well, I mean, this is where it's the same thing where we've heard all about January six and the deadly riots, and I don't think the phrase deadly riot was used for Kenosha or used for Minneapolis. You know, or used for any other place, St. Louis or Ferguson or any any other place that there were race riots. Um, they used words like "it's a reckoning," right? And they certainly didn't use the word "deadly." No, except maybe with Kyle Rittenhouse. Yes, and then only in reference to Kyle Rittenhouse. We'll we'll get all the other property destruction and fires and stuff. You know, Ali Velshi can stand out in front of the fire saying, pay no attention to the arson. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, they were all just mostly peaceful protests, which, you know, what? I mean, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but let's give it a shot. Um, I, I think that January 6th, you could say, was as much a mostly peaceful protest as a lot of those riots were that summer. The no. only difference is it was on, you know, federal land. And yes, the place where it happened was incredibly important right. on the day that it happened and that is why it's different but yes this is this underlines how much the January 6th committee was about establishing a narrative and that was well, we can't have Jim Jordan and Jim Banks in the committee why because they're going to keep comparing the January 6th riot to the summer 2020 riots and we're not allowing and that. they're going to interrupt Liz Cheney when she reads half of a quote and say wait fin finish that line Liz you're misrepresenting that and we don't want that yeah, that's how much this thing was so stilted with such a controlled narrative. There was no dissent. There was no actual discussion. So uh, let's go to this. This is one of the interesting stories. It's now become quite the post-election story, and that is the collapse of this firm FTX, the cryptocurrency, and their, uh, their guru, was his Sam Bankman Freed? Sam Bankman Freed. Uh, I cannot escape the hilarious, uh, I, I don't know if irony is the right word, it, it, appropriateness of the fact that this guy who just essentially cost millions of people billions of dollars, his name is Bankman. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. I love it. The Bankman was fried. Yeah. Uh, apparently. Uh, PJ Gladnick had an interesting piece where he said, you know, previously when he was donating millions to the Democrats and to Joe Biden. Uh, Politico thought, oh, look at this new socially conscious entrepreneur. And now, of yes. course, now, of course, Politico is like, oh, what a disaster. He was a media hero. And for, for anybody who's not familiar with exactly what happened with FTX, uh, it was a cryptocurrency exchange. So, you know, kind of like you, you can buy and trade different cryptos there. You can store them on it, whatever. And um, essentially, they had a huge liquidity problem because it turned out that some of the money wasn't going where it was supposed to go. And they had what's called a bank run, effectively, where a bunch of people get anxious and try to take their money out all at the same time. And FTX didn't have enough liquid cash on hand to give everybody their money back. And so basically, there's a ton of people left holding the bag. The entire thing collapses. 
Um, they there was talk of them being bought out by a uh, a larger competitor, and then the larger competitor basically said, "No, we've done our due diligence, and you guys are a toxic asset, so we're not buying you either." Right. Uh, and he has since fled to we think the Bahamas. We're not sure. <laughs> well, what we're finding, and I know we're going to work on this in the days to come, is somehow when the networks touch this story, there's no mention of the Democrat largesse. Yes. Yes, he is He is a mega donor. He's not just a big donor. He is the second biggest individual donor to the Democratic Party, second only to one George Soros. So that's, I mean, that's incredible in and of itself. There's also, if you look at the way he was framing this quote-unquote philanthropy, um, there's a lot of talk of we are donating to uh, a bipartisan pool of candidates across the aisle who we think are good for... Um, for the future of crypto, right? For for deinstitutionalizing money, and then you look into it and know this guy is basically actually just like a one man Democrat super PAC donating mm-hmm. to Democrat establishment politicians, and that's kind of it. Well, I mean that's and that is an interesting story, and I think that it's you know you can find some of this story emerging on Twitter, but I, it, it is a story that. Uh, that turns out to be embarrassing for the Democrats. So we would just yes. have to guess, gosh, their curiosity level is going to be perilously low. And here's the part that makes it even more unlikely for them to cover it that that scrupulously is it's not just embarrassing for the Democrats. It's embarrassing for many of these journalists themselves, because when he was still this big shot Dem mega donor, they were writing the most nauseating, glowing pieces about him. And he was declared the next Warren Buffett. Um, which I don't I don't understand how getting incredibly rich very quickly is is a Warren Buffett thing. That's kind of the opposite of Buffett and Munger's uh, whole strategy. But that's beside the point. Um, They they were worshiping the guy. It was straight up idolatry in in journalistic format. And now that's coming back to bite them again, as it does with so many of these people that they elevate without looking into anything, you know, and his his foundation was donating to a lot of these journalistic publications, like ProPublica. Mm-hmm. They, they, he donated a lot of money to them. I think Vice or Vox, I forget which, one of the two insufferable V uh, <laughs> outlets. Um, and neither of them have disclosed how much money he gave them. And they were both totally incurious about, you know, where all this money that they're receiving from him is coming from. You know, it's, it's the entire thing stinks to high heaven. And the fact that Journalists are in some way implicated, either by in-kind donations of not looking into it or by writing these glowing articles about him, uh, just to me says there's no way they're going to touch this. Like th- th- there's going to be very, very light coverage of it and then it's going to go away. And I just think that this is a natural, when you look at the partisan impulses of the so-called mainstream press, uh, he's a good guy. Yeah, he's just he when somebody's a good guy donating billions to Biden and the Democrats is what a good guy does. Um, and yes, it, he's he's compared to, you know, he's for compassion. He's a humanitarian. Uh, that's the way he was pitched. Uh, it turns out he was a con man. Yeah. Uh, so now what? Uh, but the network stories I've certainly seen. They will talk about it, like how much FTX collapsed, that they were going to name stadiums after them, that they had FTX patches on the umpires at the World Series. Uh, right. But no yeah. connection. Of course. 
of course. Yeah, no connection because that's that's the uncomfortable detail. And I think that what might happen is they'll wait for some of the more conspiratorial talk of of there's there's been talk of FTX being used as like a money laundering thing for Democrats. And that's, I, I think, as far as I know, still completely a baseless assertion. I haven't seen any evidence of that. But they're they're going to wait for these conspiracy theory things to start percolating and then frame the entire uh, shame or the entire portion of this being an embarrassment for Democrats as all a conspiracy theory. That'll be the only time that they talk about it. Well, I mean, this is, look, most journalism, investigative journalism starts with a theory. Right. You can call it conspiracy theory. Those are the terms you use when you want to denigrate it. Or you have a theory of the case. You know, we had a theory of Russian collusion for for years. That was a conspiracy theory. (laughs) They never called it that at the time. It was basically just news. It was democracy dies in darkness, investigative journalism. Uh, And so that's, yes, this is where it's like you understand that theories then lead to investigations. Investigations lead you to some some facts. But yes, the curiosity level uh, is dramatically different between covering Democrats and Republicans. That is why we're here. That's why you come to Newsbusters once, twice, 24 times a day. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me, Tim.